listeners, I'm Sarah. And I'm Athad. Welcome to Shifting Gears, where we explore research perspectives that go against the grain. For this episode, we're going to talk to you about clean water and our very strong opinions on it as a society. Clean water is essential to life. In Canada, we are very fortunate that most of our citizens have access to clean running water. We know this is not the case everywhere in the world, so it is not something we should take for granted. That being said, we know our history of industry has, in many cases, been detrimental to water quality in our water bodies. This episode's guest has spent his career investigating water quality. William Shoddick, I go by Bill, and my position is OCOC Chair for Agriculture and the Environment. Dr. Shoddick has been in academia for a while. Long, long time. Uh, so there was electricity, you know, when I was a student. So not so long ago. But uh, basically, I went to university as an undergraduate in 1977, and I never left. Dr. Shoddick started as an undergrad at the University of Guelph, then completed his PhD at Western University. He moved to California briefly for his postdoc, then returned to Western for a research associate position before moving to Europe. There, he worked at the University of Bern in Switzerland for 12 years, followed by 10 years at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. Afterwards, he moved to Canada, where he spent the last seven years at the University of Alberta. So, what does Dr. Schottick study? He studies trace elements in the environment. This means elements that are naturally present in very, very small amounts. Some of these are potentially toxic, heavy metals, like lead. Most people today are aware that lead poisoning, the overexposure to lead, is very bad for our health. Some of these trace elements, however, are essential micronutrients, things like copper and zinc. We need these to be healthy. Dr. Shoddick studies these trace elements in many forms. So I study them in the air, I study them in soil, I study them in water, I study them in biota. So I try to look at the entire cycle of trace elements. I try to understand the natural cycle so that I can then understand the effect of human activities on those cycles. So first, let's discuss some of the sampling methods. Dr. Shadok explained to us how data can be collected from snow, moss, and peat bogs. Snow samples will tell us what is happening now based on their content. Moss has no roots and as such gathers its nutrients from the air. Dr. Shadok can sample moss at the end of the growing season and see what has happened over that period. He can also calculate the seasonal growth rate of the moss and use that to calculate an accumulation rate of these trace elements. Peat bogs then accumulate moss over millennia. The peat bog Dr. Schottick studied in Switzerland is the oldest record in the Northern Hemisphere. His cores from this bog contain 15,000 years of history and help him to reconstruct the Earth's air chemistry over that period. Much of Dr. Schottick's work has focused on lead, and I asked him to discuss how lead levels have been changing over time. So when I was walking to high school back in the day in Toronto, the air lead concentrations would have been equivalent to living within a kilometer of a lead smelter. That was the air quality in downtown Toronto at the time. 1976, we introduced unleaded gasoline in Canada, and it was part of a worldwide campaign to eliminate lead from gasoline. Mm -hmm. And ever since, lead in the air has been in decline 
more or less worldwide. So in terms of air lead concentrations, if we look at our data for ice cores from the Canadian Arctic, we can see that lead reached its zenith in the 1970s and has been declining. So to understand the natural level of lead in the air, we had to measure nearly 15,000 years of ice, and we find that the cleanest ice is between approximately 5,000 and 8,000 years ago. So to find natural levels of lead in ice from the Canadian Arctic, we have to go back in time about 5,000 years. The little peat bog that I studied in Switzerland to find natural levels of lead, we also had to go back in time about 5,000 years. So for the past 5,000 years, we've been using a lot of lead and extracting silver from lead ores since the beginning of metallurgy. Mm -hmm. So roughly 5,000 years of pollution history, and introducing lead in gasoline was like the final chapter of the lead pollution story. But we've made all kinds of efforts, not just unleaded gasoline, but taking lead out of paint, taking lead out of linoleum, and so on and so on. So we've been generally reducing our lead emissions to the atmosphere. It was good to know that lead levels in the atmosphere have been decreasing since the 1970s. But one of Dr. Shadek's main focuses has been lead in water. He has tested the lead concentration in the Athabasca River, upstream and downstream of the oil sands industry. And his samples have to be taken very precisely to get accurate readings of the trace elements. So collect the water sample. We filter it through a 0.45 micron filter to remove the particles. And our bottle, our filter, our syringe all cleaned in nitric acid in our ultra-clean laboratory. So everything is clean before we go out and collect our samples. We even clean the acid before we clean the bottle. So we have a quart still, the acid is distilled twice. Listeners, you might be wondering, like we were, what exactly an ultra-clean lab is? There's different types of ultra-clean laboratories. So people who are working with bacteria and viruses and, and biohazards, they may have a clean laboratory. It's clean in respect to the types of measurements that they're doing, okay? A colleague of mine in the faculty of medicine has a clean laboratory for organic contaminants and so on. Our clean laboratory is clean in respect to trace metals. So the entire lab is made out of plastic, specifically polypropylene. It's the same polymer as Tupperware. So imagine a giant lab made of Tupperware, okay, and all of the air coming in is filtered to remove all the dust particles. So it's a clean air lab, and it's a metal-free clean air lab. So we've avoided metals throughout. But the instruments that are sitting in the lab to measure our samples those instruments contain metals. We have computers in our lab. Your average Joe computer probably has 30 different metals in it, including lead in all of the electronics. So within the clean lab, we have clean air benches. So when you're working at the lab bench, the air in the lab comes into the lab bench and gets filtered again. So every month we have a handheld laser particle counter 
and we go around the lab checking every cabinet, we have not yet detected one particle in any of the cabinets. So that's what I mean by clean. So we can measure down to really, really low levels. So with this ultra clean lab and his very strict sampling, he tested the water in the Athabasca River. Lead concentrations upstream of industry, downstream of industry are the same. There's no significant difference. And the lead concentrations are low on the order of 20 parts per trillion. So that's within a factor of five of that ancient Arctic ice. So these are natural background levels of, of lead. They're the levels of lead that you would find in a river if the water was not contaminated. It may seem strange that downstream of an industry like the oil sands, we don't see an increase in lead concentration. In fact, Dr. Shadik has also similarly tested other toxic trace elements in the Athabasca River, silver, cadmium, antimony, and thallium. And these elements are also present at natural background levels downstream of the oil sands. So we wanted to know why this was, and Dr. Shadik was keen to clear up some misconceptions, starting with bitumen. Essentially, the oil sands have two components, the bitumen, or oil, and the sand. Some people have had a hard time trying to understand why these metal levels are so low in an area where there's open pit mining and upgrading of bitumen. So why are the lead levels so low? But the, the part that's missing in terms of understanding is how much lead is in bitumen. So we know, and we've known this for 80 years, Bitumen is enriched in vanadium, and bitumen is enriched in nickel, and bitumen is enriched in molybdenum. We've known that for 80 years. I can show you the textbook. Very well established. I've never heard about lead in bitumen, or antimony in bitumen, or thallium in bitumen. So, for us to better understand this and to be able to explain this to people, we took some bituminous sand, which is sand with bitumen. We extracted the bitumen using organic solvents, just like industry does. We extracted the bitumen. Now we've got some oil. We digested that and analyzed it in the clean lab for all of the trace elements. And what did we find? Vanadium, nickel, and molybdenum. And that's basically it. But if you take the sand, when you extract that bitumen, now the sand looks like beach sand. Because, by the way, it's beach sand, okay? We digest that, and we find lead, and antimony, and silver, and thallium. But the amount that we find is the amount that you would find in any beach sand. For example, Wasega Beach <laughs> on Lake Huron, okay? Now... When I go to Wasega Beach in the summertime, which I rarely do, but if I do, <laughs> and there's people lying on the beach in their bikinis, in their bathing shorts, if I were to ask them, are you concerned about the antimony and the lead and the thallium in that beach sand and what that may be doing for your health, what do you think their reply would be? So Wasega Beach is located in southern Ontario, and it is the longest freshwater sand beach in the world. About 2 million people visit each summer, 
and I highly doubt any of them have ever worried about trace elements in the sand. All of these potentially toxic heavy metals, they occur naturally. They've been here on this planet as part of the planet for about four and a half billion years. You know, when the planet arrived, the elements were there, okay? So, our rocks contain these elements. Our rocks at the surface of the Earth, the minerals that make up those rocks, are thermodynamically unstable. They slowly break down and form soil. Those elements are then in that soil, okay? So, the Athabasca bituminous sands is mainly sand, 85% sand, roughly, 15% bitumen. Not quite, because there's some clay and there's some water. But those metals are in the sand. So when people are mining and upgrading, I think those elements remain in the sand. They're in the form of minerals that are stable, and they're not breaking down. And that's why in the river the concentrations are so low. If you look at our value for thallium, dissolved in the Athabasca River. And thallium is one of the most toxic heavy metals. The levels that we're measuring, on average, 2.8 parts per trillion. That's less than the global average for pristine rivers. It's a very low concentration. So it would seem to me that the reason why we're not finding heavy metal pollution is because those heavy metals are actually in the sand. So from open pit mining, you generate a lot of dust. So the plants will have dust. Okay, so if you take a plant sample and you simply digest the entire thing and measure all the heavy metals, have you measured what's in the plant or have you measured what's in the dust on the plant surface? And this is actually a really important point. It's not just about how much is there. The question is, what form is it in? And is it in a form that's accessible and available to living organisms? Given the difficulty people can have understanding and accepting this information, we asked Dr. Shadek about the importance of effective communication. It's very important to get the word out. If I have all the information in my head, that doesn't benefit anybody. So what we do as scientists is we publish our work in peer-reviewed international journals. The average peer-reviewed paper in a scientific journal will be read by approximately this many people. Okay? So, in other words, who's going to know about it? So the communication to the public is really important. Mm -hmm. So this is why when we uh, published our work about the decline in atmospheric lead deposition, we created a press release and we sent that out so that the media would pick this up and report this. And I was really happy Chemical and Engineering News picked up on this and it has a huge readership. So. The American Chemical Society, biggest scientific society in the world, it's their weekly news magazine, they did a report on this. But, you know, here in Alberta, here in Canada, the issue of the oil sands, or tar sands, depending on where you are in the political spectrum, is very polarizing. 
I use the term bituminous sand because that's the correct geological term. Because oil sand, tar sand, there's variations in viscosity. So these materials are called bituminous sands. It's a very polarizing issue. What I'm trying to do is put the facts on the table. High quality, reliable analytical data. So if we analyze a sample, we don't run out and publish a paper. We check and we double check. If you look at our data on trace elements in the Athabasca River, you know, we spent 10 days sampling. We collected 10 water bottles at each of our 13 sites for all kinds of other measurements. Huge amount of work. When we got our data, the picture was so clear. But the following year, we went out and redid the whole thing, but we went to more sites. And when we did our analyses, same story, same results. And in the lab, we're checking, we're double checking. So high quality analytical data, very low limits of detection, very high accuracy and high precision. Here are the results. Mm -hmm. What people do with these results once we get them out there, we have no control over that. Now, for me, you know, we began this conversation with me telling you about me walking to high school, breathing air that was comparable in respect to lead with living within a kilometer of a lead smelter. So when we documented atmospheric lead deposition today in northern Alberta around the open pit mines and, and upgraders, comparable to what we had in Europe 6,000 years ago, that's a beautiful story. That is a good news story. Very little uptake by the media. Who wants to report a good news story? There's so much awful news to report all day long. That's what sells newspapers. That's what gets people to tune into the television. And, you know, I'm really sorry. I've been here nearly seven years. I have no bad news. If I had bad news, I would be telling you mm -hmm. about it. So whatever news we have, there's the news. It's true. Good news is hard to find. And while it's good to know that these five toxic trace elements are not increasing in concentration downstream of the oil sands, there are still other pollutants to be concerned about. Dr. Shadik talked to us about PAHs, which are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are known carcinogens. Dr. Shadik and his colleagues in the Faculty of Medicine, Dr. Jonathan Martin and Dr. Yifeng Zhang, have found PAHs are increasing in the peak cores over time. These PAHs are in the form of particles, so they are limited to a radius of 50 kilometers from their point of origin. Dr. Shadik emphasized that we need to distinguish between real problems and perceived problems and make sure that the public really understands this. Well, you know, I mention this only because when we published the work showing that lead is not an issue, somebody asked, oh, so the oil sands are fine then. So there's no effect on the environment. We're not saying that. What we're saying is lead is not an issue. That's two different things. And I think part of the challenge is in this age of hyper-information flow, very few people are going to take the time to sit down and try to understand this. They just want, just 
give me one sentence. And that's difficult. Mm -hmm. That's difficult. So we can really only help people understand that want to understand. So there's a quotation from Galileo. You can't teach a person anything. You can only help them to find it within themselves. But people are still concerned about the potential negative impacts, especially First Nations communities living downstream of the oil sands. We asked Dr. Shadok how he might respond to their concerns. So this is kind of my real motivation. They get a lot of information. It's not all high-quality information. And what they need is reliable information about contaminants in their foods. They have very simple questions. Can I eat the food? Can I not eat the food? They want to know, is my food supply contaminated? That is a very reasonable question. If I was living downstream from a mine, I would want to know that. So I think for our First Nations communities, for them to be able to maintain their traditional lifestyle, if they want to, they have to have access to a reliable supply of quality food. And so I'm confident in the past, their diet was a very healthy diet. Fish and game and berries. For them to understand the levels of contaminants, once we have reliable information about contaminant levels in their foods, then they will be in a, in a better position to understand how important, how healthy those foods are for their diet. So this is an element of food security, and it's also an element of maintaining their traditional lifestyles, again, if they want to maintain their traditional lifestyles. Some of the current research in Dr. Shadok's lab is looking at beaver meat, which is a delicacy for many of the Northern Alberta First Nations communities. Beavers are found all over Canada, so it's quite easy to find reference beavers for their study. Once an accurate background level of trace elements in the beaver is established, Dr. Shadok and his team can determine if the beavers in Northern Alberta have higher concentrations of dangerous trace elements. So now, this brings us back to Dr. Shadok's water testing. We wanted to give you more information about his reference water. This water, which he uses to establish a natural background level for trace elements, is very special to him. My practice water, my reference water, is from our farm property in Ontario. I've been studying the artesian spring water on our farm property in Ontario for more than 25 years. We started testing it for lead more than, oh gosh, 15 years ago. But the lead levels in the water are so low, I've had to design and construct dedicated groundwater sampling wells to be able to measure lead in the water. So I don't want to look at lead contamination from the well. I want to look and see what's in the water. So specialized materials... But we found lead levels in groundwater are so low, I have to filter the air before I collect the water samples. So my reference water for all of my studies is from my farm, 
And the lead levels in our spring water at the farm are roughly five times lower than the cleanest ice layers from the Arctic. And that's because of the natural filtration of lead by the soils. That is incredibly pure water. It is. However, around when Dr. Shadek was first discovering just how clean this water was, the local county was planning to build a landfill in the same watershed. People had been fighting this for 20 years, and they found out that there's a guy who's testing the water and the water is really clean. And they said, Bill, would you help us in our battle? And I said, no, because I don't do that. I'm a scientist. But I knew how clean the water was. So I thought, as a scientist, it's very legitimate for me to raise awareness about the quality of the water today. Why not let people know how clean the water is today? So that's what I did. So I created the, uh, the Elmvale Water Festival. And so that it wouldn't look like some kind of protest action, I created the Elmvale Foundation which is a federally registered charity for environmental education. That was in 2007. And uh, the festival raised a lot of awareness. It was great. We had music and food and speakers and beautiful presentations. Everything was filmed, put on the website. We raised a lot of awareness. I think it helped people to better understand the value of water that you can literally drink as it's coming out of the ground. I think, I think we helped to raise awareness, and the First Nations people got involved in that battle, and I think that changed everything. And for me, again, I was not involved in any of that. My focus was raising awareness about the quality of the water today. And, uh, but the First Nations people, what I learned from them, they have a whole different way of looking at water. And water has a whole different meaning to them. And I think there's a lot of learning that we can do from them about water and, and, and its importance. This whole thing got really hot politically. And eventually that landfill was shut down. Even though they'd already started construction, the whole thing was shut down and the land went back to agriculture. The Elmville Water Festival has become an annual celebration of the amazingly clean local water. But Dr. Shadek cautions that scientists must be careful with how they approach issues like this. For us as scientists, if, if we step over that fine line and we begin to advocate, we can't go back to being a scientist. And it's not easy. It's not easy. But what I've tried to do with all of the issues related to land use in that area, I've tried to keep it really simple. Here are the results of our chemical analysis of the water. The water is clean. That's all I've ever tried to explain. We've got beautiful, clean water gushing out of the ground. Isn't that lovely? Right? But I'm trying to motivate people to protect that water for future generations. So I have children. I hope they can go to the farm and turn on the tap and drink the water coming right out of the ground. My question for all of us as a society, 
are we going to be drinking that water in future? That's the question. And that'll depend on how we treat our landscape. It touches home too. My family's from Somalia in East Africa, and we go through droughts quite often. And right now, it's been the worst drought we've ever had. And it's completely about access to clean water. I think droughts are a natural issue, but when it comes to famine and access to clean water, that's a political issue. In Canada, there is the perception that we have so much water, mm-hmm. we can do anything we want, right? And we'll always have water, and water of a quality that we can use for whatever the application. That is simply not true. And if anything, we should be more appreciative of the water simply because we have so much and more motivated to protect it for future generations. And when the water is not available, okay, that's when people begin to appreciate it. So what I'm trying to do with Elmvale Foundation, Elmvale Water Festival, Elmvale Water Kiosk is to remind all of us Look at the abundance that we have today, okay? So what can we all do together, collectively, so that future generations can enjoy this as well? We learned a lot from Dr. Shadik. We learned to distinguish between real and imagined issues when it comes to pollution. With an issue as polarizing as the oil sands, it is crucial that we have accurate, precise science and that this science is accessible to the public in a meaningful, unbiased way. And we have also learned that water is a precious resource. Wherever possible, we need to ensure that we protect our water resources. That's our show. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Dr. Shadik.